If you have a Bible, could you please turn to 1 Kings chapter 11? Uh, I've got a slight problem today, uh, and it's this, now don't worry, uh, this is not about to be a moment of embarrassing personal confession. Uh, Here's my problem. I am in real danger of becoming predictable and boring. Now, before someone shouts, too late, uh, that horse bolted long ago. Let me explain what I mean. I'm going to use three phrases today. Three phrases that I, that I want you to take away. But they're three phrases that I use and I refer to a lot. In fact, it seems like I've been quoting one of them almost every single week recently. And some of you already know exactly what I'm referring to. And that is a problem. It's a danger because there's every chance that this phrase or all three of them are going to become so repetitive that they lose their impact and their meaning. So let's guess at what the phrases are, okay? So what's the first phrase? (laughs) I am so predictable, aren't I? The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, right? The other two phrases may be a wee bit more difficult, but what do you reckon one of the others might be? Yeah, above all, thanks, Colleen, was that? Above all else, guard your heart. The third phrase I maybe don't use quite as often, but it's this. It's not just how you start that matters, it's how you also finish. Thanks, Gerald. <laughs> You're ahead of me as well. I just need to sit down, don't I? <laughs> so there's three phrases that, that if you hear nothing else, uh, hear those, take those away today. I have got another slight problem, and that is I have spoken on First Kings twice before at Windsor. Now, can anyone remember the first time I spoke on First Kings? <laughs> Roughly. Exactly, Richard. June 2007, I spoke at Windsor on First Kings before I, I came as a pastor. And then the second time I spoke on First Kings was in uh, 2011, May 2011, two and a half years after I became pastor at Windsor. It was part of the Essential Word series. So some of you are going to hear a lot of this for the third time, which could be a problem. Although as I was thinking about that and wrestling with it and thinking, what will I share? How much of what I've shared before will I share again? I've decided and I reckon, you know, it's not such a bad thing given, given the nature and actually the sheer weight of this chapter. I mean, this is a heavy chapter in God's Word. So let's turn to the text. One of the... uh, One of the questions we finished last week with was this. What would Solomon do? What will Solomon do? 20 years into his tenure as king, God appeared to Solomon. We looked at this last week. This is 1 Kings chapter 9. 20 years, halfway into his reign as king, God appears to Solomon and reminds him to walk faithfully to conduct himself, to behave himself, to live faithfully before God. And he was to do that with integrity of heart and uprightness 
And he was also to do that in obedience to God and to God's word. And God also graciously, we said, warned Solomon what would happen if he didn't do this. And so we ended last week by asking the question, okay, what is Solomon going to do now? What is he going to do with this second appearance of God speaking into his life? How is he going to live the rest of his life as king? Well, let's find out. Please stand for the public reading of God's at times disappointing word. 1 Kings 11, it should be on the screen. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Then down to verse 41. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, they are not written in the book of the annals of Solomon. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Grab a seat. So it's not just how you start that matters. It's how you finish that also counts. Solomon started so well. If you have a Bible in front of you, you want to flick back to 1 Kings chapter 3. You know, one of the first things that we read about this third king of Israel, one of the first things that we read about him was that he loved God and he showed it. He loved God and he lived it. And so we read Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions that had been given to him by his father, David. Solomon started so well. When we meet Solomon and back in the early part of 1 Kings, he's in a good place. He's in love with God. And he's not just saying he's in love with God. He's showing that he loves God. He's living his faith out. And this is even before he is gifted with phenomenal wisdom. That comes after this. God gave Solomon a wise and a discerning heart to such an extent, and again, I'm quoting, 
There will never have been anyone like you, Solomon, nor will there ever be. Solomon was the wisest person who ever lived. And so he wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. His fame spread. What a start. Solomon then built and furnished the temple of the Lord. And as he stood before the altar at the grand opening, he led the people in that incredible prayer of God-centered praise and dedication. In chapter 9 then, God appears to him again, reminds him of his true priorities. And then in chapter 10, which we didn't look at, which we've skipped, the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon because she'd heard so much about him. And in the very first verse of 1 Kings chapter 10, we read that when the queen of Sheba heard about the the fame of Solomon, and then get this, but whenever she heard about his relationship with the Lord, Solomon's relationship with God was legendary. And the text actually tells us that because she was so impressed with his relationship with God, it says she was overwhelmed. Solomon started so well, ran so well. Yes, there were moments whenever we might have questioned certain details recorded in the first 10 chapters, but you know, by and large, it all looked, it all came across so good. Solomon looked, Solomon came across so good, so positively. And therefore, whenever you get to chapter 11, especially if you were reading this for the first time, and I know for many of us that's not a luxury we have, but when you get to chapter 11, especially if you're reading it for the first time, you cannot quite believe what you read. You cannot quite believe what you discover because it becomes apparent, it becomes distressingly clear that Solomon did not finish well. Chapter 11 is, as one writer comments, the dull thud after the high hopes of 1 to 10. Solomon dies in chapter 11, but that's not the headline. One out of one people do that. It's the spiritual condition of the man when he dies. It's the state of his relationship with the Lord at the end that is just so alarming. It's not just how you start that matters. It's how you finish that also counts. Solomon finished badly. And at one level, you're left wondering, how did someone so gifted, how did someone so wise, someone so in tune, so blessed, so renowned, so determined in their faith, someone who did so much good for God, how did that someone lose their way? And it's a question many of us have asked, maybe not of Solomon, but we've asked it about someone we've known. A family member, a friend, a colleague, a church member who started so well, who once walked so close to God, who served in all kinds of ways, but today, today they seem so distant, so uninterested, so apathetic, so disconnected, 
And you're left wondering why. How did that happen? Well, as we read Solomon's story, as we read this bleak last chapter of his life, we discover exactly what happened. And I want to suggest that what happened to Solomon mirrors what happens to those we know who have lost their way. And can I say this? It can happen to any one of us. It can. It can happen to any of us sitting here this morning if we're not careful. And now for this phrase number two, because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You see, Solomon's heart wandered. It became tragically divided, or to use the term that the text uses, it turned. Solomon's heart turned. That was the core issue. And whenever a heart goes walkabouts, whenever the willing, loving, thinking center of a person, the real you, because that's what the heart is in biblical terms, the willing, loving, thinking center of a person, the real you, whenever it loses its way, whenever the heart loses its focus, whenever the heart loses its first love, you're in real trouble. You're heading for spiritual free fall. And so if you have a Bible in front of you, look at, the, look at the references, the kind of negative references to the heart that are mentioned in those first few verses. There it is on the screen. For surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to those in, the, those in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wife turned his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God, as was the heart of David his father. Down to verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. You see, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It is every single time. It's why I'm never, never gonna stop referring to this. So the question is, what actually happened? What caused Solomon's heart to turn? What caused it to divide? What caused it to wander? What caused him to lose his first love? Well, there's three things. Three reasons. And the first, disobedience. You'll remember David's dying words to his son. As he hands over the throne to Solomon, here's what David said. Solomon Walk in obedience to God. Walk in obedience to God and keep his decrees and his commands, keep his laws and his regulations as written in the law of Moses. And then last week, we discovered that 20 years later, 20 years after he was on the throne, midpoint of his reign, God appeared to him for that second time and reminded him about the importance of this. And so God says to him, do all that I have commanded you, Solomon. Walk in my ways. Follow my decrees. Well, in one issue, God had been explicit. And it related to marriage. Look at verse 2. You must not intermarry with them. That is the foreign women. That is non-Israelites. And then you read, end of verse 2, Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Yes, yes, God, I hear what you've said. 
But nevertheless, I'm going to do my own thing. Plus in Deuteronomy 17, where we find many of the decrees and the commands and the regulations that God had set out, God said that a king must not take many wives. 700. That's kind of many in whatever way you look at it. Plus 300 concubines. You see, God had been direct with Solomon. But Solomon chose to do his own thing. And as a consequence, his heart suffered. You see, few things affect your relationship with God more negatively than blatant disobedience. Solomon knew what he was doing. Yet he went ahead and did it anyway. I suppose the question for us this morning is this. Is there anything going on in my life that I know is wrong? That I know God has been explicit about and yet I choose to continue to do it. You see, knowing God's word, even believing God's word, which is all great, but the critical issue is always, am I going to obey it? Am I going to do it? Am I not only going to hear it, am I going to be a doer of it? Am I going to actively walk it out, live it out, put it into practice, allow it to influence and shape my decisions? Or is it all just head knowledge? Solomon knew God's word. He had been urged to obey it by his dying dad. He had been urged to obey it by none other than God himself, who somehow miraculously, supernaturally appeared to him at least twice and reminded him of the importance of obeying it. But Solomon decided, no, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to dilute it. And his heart turned. And the second problem, the second issue, the second heart divider was compromise, and it's, it's linked to the first, I know. You see, Solomon didn't abandon his faith or totally give up on God altogether, as far as we can tell from the text. He didn't completely abandon his faith and walk away from God. But what he did do was he started to mix it up, particularly with other gods. Look at verse 4 again. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and then the stinging phrase, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God. You see, compromise distorts devotion. Solomon knew, as we all do, that the first command was, you should have no other gods before me, Solomon. He also knew from the law that he was to love God with all his heart, soul, strength, in mind, he was to love God with his entire being, but you see, compromised worship reduces that intensity and chips away at your commitment. The moment we begin to accommodate other gods, lesser gods, is the moment that your heart starts to turn. And the moment your heart starts to turn is the moment other gods start soliciting your affection. Came across this quote during the week. The heart which is divided and provides only certain rooms for Yahweh will soon find tenants for the others. You see, if God is not number one in every area, in every room of your life, then other gods will move in. 
Solomon allowed other gods to capture his heart or certainly capture part of his heart. And as we all know, whenever something captures part of your heart, it captures part of you. And those other gods in our lives take many different forms, don't they? They can be another person. They can be your job. They can be a career. They can be money. They can be a hobby. They can be an interest. And you see, compromise is, is kind of linked to disobedience, and yet it's different. Disobedience is it's clinical. God has said this, but I'm going to do that. Whereas compromise, well, that, it's more subtle. It's, it's more gradual. You, you drift into compromise. It seems less conscious, less determined people talk about the creeping pace of accumulated compromise where you start to mix it up a little. You accommodate things a bit, but if you're not careful, then that thing and that behavior, that practice, that God becomes a much bigger part of your life than you ever imagined it would become. And it's starting to dictate it's starting to gain your affection. It's starting to climb up into number one place in your life. And so compromise erodes commitment. And the result is, the result is a heart that is no longer fully. You still have a heart after God, but the result of compromise is you'll no longer have a heart that is fully devoted to God. And the result and the danger is half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity that leaves a sour taste in the mouth. Solomon's repeated uncompromise undid him, cost him dearly. And then the third thing, the third reason, the third problem, the third cause of spiritual freefall was distraction. It overlaps again with the first two, but you see, Solomon got distracted. Yes, he got distracted by women. He got distracted by other gods. But in verse seven, look at this with me, and, and I've never really dwelt on this bit before. But in verse seven, we read that Solomon built these high places. And he built them for other gods. And the text actually describes these other gods as detestable other gods. And it says he also built these high places for his foreign wives who then burned incense and sacrificed to their gods at this place. You see, Solomon's field of vision was regularly taken up with distractions. These things that he had built, these high places that he has built were constantly filling his field of vision. And they not only took his eyes off God, but they took his heart away. And the key problem with them is that they were self-inflicted. And yes, we all get distracted. There will be times when things around us will attempt, us, will attempt to take our eyes off God, off Jesus. And we need God's help to remain focused, but the problem is ramped up significantly whenever we put those distractions before us. Whenever we allow other gods to occupy a prime place in our lives, a high place in our lives. Whenever we retain them in our field of vision instead of getting rid of them, Solomon got badly distracted and lost his focus. So, three things that impacted his heart negatively that caused it to turn blatant disobedience, creeping compromise, deadly distraction. And the result, the result of this was serious. And verse nine begins with that 
shocking phrase. It's a disturbing phrase. The Lord became angry. I don't don't know how you respond to that, how you feel about that. Now, it wasn't that, that God somehow lost the head with Solomon. This wasn't irrational anger. This wasn't an uncontrolled outburst on God's part. This reaction is totally consistent with who God is. So in Deuteronomy 6, we read, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you. God is jealous. God not only deserves our worship He wants our worship. He wants our wholehearted worship. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And whenever we choose to replace God with other lesser gods, whenever we allow counterfeit gods to rival him and cause our hearts to divide, God cannot simply sit back, watch, and do nothing. It's inconsistent with his character. It's inconsistent with who God is. And again, we need to be clear that that this was Solomon's choice. Despite his wisdom, despite those two dramatic life-altering appearances of God in his life, despite everything, Solomon chose this. So if you look at verse 11, since this is your attitude, Solomon, this wasn't forced upon you. You didn't so much drift. This is your attitude, Solomon. This has been the choice you've made despite your wisdom, despite my miraculous appearances to you. So the disobedience, the compromise, the distractions, they're all entertained by Solomon. And therefore, as a result of his poor choices, painful consequences naturally follow, as they almost always do. And so God says, I'm going to tear your kingdom away from you. This is your attitude, Solomon. I'm going to tear your kingdom away from you. I'm going to give it to one of your subordinates. Verse 14, then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary. Verse 23, and God raised up against Solomon another adversary. Verse 26, also Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. You see, consequences always accompany our choices. And for Solomon, those consequences were serious. They were actually far-reaching because Solomon's divided heart led to a divided kingdom. We cannot play fast and loose with God. Our relationship with him matters. Our commitment to him matters. And whenever our hearts begin to turn, whenever they begin to divide, alarm bells need to go off. And so despite such a great start, and I'm nearly done, despite all the wisdom, despite the great praying, despite the one-time legendary relationship with God that he once had that brought queens to come and see this man for herself, despite all of that, it ends tragically. So what can we do? How can we avoid making the same mistakes? And I know there is a sense in which this, this could come across as slightly all moralizing, That there's more going on in this chapter, and I know there is more going on in this chapter. And I know there is hope in this chapter. And we are going to come back to that next week. But I believe we need to be honest about what we discover 
in the sheer weight of this chapter. And so how do we avoid making the same mistakes? Time for phrase number three. Above all else, guard your heart. And the ironic thing about this is that there's every possibility that Solomon penned this advice. Above all else, guard your heart and then to finish the sentence because it affects everything you do. As many of you know, it's my life verse. It's my inked on my skin life verse. Above all else, one of the most important things you can ever do is guard your heart. Why? Because God says it affects everything else. So it's out of the heart that your mouth speaks. It's out of your heart that you worship. It's out of your heart that you behave. It's out of your heart that you lead. It's out of your heart that you make choices. It's out of your heart that you make a willful, conscious decision to love God and to love others. So God says, above all else, there is possibly nothing else more important than this. Guard your heart. So the question is, how? How? Well, one of the core and key ways takes us back to our last series. Unforced rhythms. It takes us right back to the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith because it's through these. It's via our praying. It's via our silence and solitude. It's via our meditating, studying, embracing God's word, living God's word, meditating upon God's word. It's via our confession. It's via all these God given rhythms of life that we guard our hearts. Solomon let the guard down. And so his heart became exposed and it became vulnerable. And as he comes to the end of his life and the end of his reign, it's all summed up in these two sentences. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God, as his father, his heart, the heart of David had been. And he did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. There's the summary of Solomon's life at the end. David wasn't perfect. I mean, David made huge mistakes. Glaring errors, stupid, stupid choices. But you see, it's not about perfection. The difference is that David consistently chose to turn his heart towards God. And so, for example, we read at times whenever he was challenged and he was held accountable for certain choices that he had made, he said, God created me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. You see, David kept coming back. And part of the reason I believe David guarded his heart was because from day one, he knew that the Lord looks at the heart whereas everybody else looks at the outward appearance. was not how David got chosen to be king in the first place. He discovered that man, women, humanity looks on the outward appearance, but it's God who sees the heart and looks in the heart, who's concerned about the heart. And so it is a God who says, listen, above all else, guard it because it affects everything else. You do. So we're done. Where is your heart this morning? Is it fully devoted to God or is there any danger that it's on the turn? How will I finish I may have started okay, 
may have ran reasonably okay. How will I finish? Three phrases. It's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish that also counts. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and above all else, guard your heart.